0: There can be no greater question that anyone will ever ask you to consider than the question put by Jesus to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. The reason there is no greater question is because there is far more that hangs in the balance with this question than with any other question you will ever have to face You might face a question and that one question makes the difference between getting to the university of your choice or not. You might face a question and that one question decides whether or not you get the dream job you've applied for. You might face a question which will one day decide if you're about to win a million pounds, if you're into that kind of thing. You might face a question And your answer will determine who you walk down the aisle to marry. There are many questions that deal with big issues that all of us face and which can have a huge bearing on the rest of our lives. But there's one question that you have to face and how you answer it will change and will direct the rest of your life. And it will decide where you spend eternity. One question. Just one question. It's a question Jesus put to his disciples. And so we're going to look at this little passage and see what it tells us. So I'd encourage you to have it open. Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. So here in Caesarea Philippi, the Lord Jesus has taken his disciples aside, he's just dealing with them and he asks them two important questions but you must understand he has just one goal in mind as he addresses them. Jesus is desiring to confirm in the hearts and minds of his disciples what he has been teaching them and showing them and demonstrating to them about who he is. He wants them to be absolutely convinced, convicted Committed in the truth of who he is, because from this point in Matthew's gospel, he's also going to begin to explicitly teach them about the nature of the work that he has come to do. Because all of these miracles that he's before been, pe- been performing, they may think that's wonderful, but that's nothing compared to what yet has to happen, and they will not appreciate the significance of what it is that Christ must do if they do not fully understand who he is. And so, first of all, Jesus wants to impress upon them who he is. Then he can start to talk to them about the work that he's come to do. And so, in verses 13 and 14, uh, we have this initial question that Jesus puts to them. Uh, And actually, as we look at those verses, the clues in the question. The clues in the question. So they've traveled up north, north of Galilee, that's where Caesarea Philippi is, and he's just talking to them. And I want you to notice the way that Jesus phrases his question. He doesn't simply ask, who do people say that I am? Notice exactly what Jesus says. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now that's interesting, because in his question, Jesus is actually also providing the answer, if they've got the eyes to see it, if they've got the ears to hear it. The point is this. If he is the Son of Man, there can only be one correct answer. But is there anyone of the 12 that has it? And if you will answer this question with anything other than the right answer, then you're in big trouble because you will have missed the whole thing about Jesus. You've missed the whole point if you cannot answer this question correctly. Jesus realises that when it comes to knowing who he is, Many people are putting two and two together, but no one is coming up with four. They're coming up with every answer but. Indeed, many people like to think that it's perfectly okay to come up with your own answers to this question. Well, the way I like to think think about Jesus is. The problem is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God, who, as John explicitly puts it at the start of his gospel record, is the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. The Lord Jesus Christ is a definite, eternal, infinite person whose identity has been fixed from eternity past. He's not a fictional character for us to decide how we like to think about him. He's not a character from a work of fiction and whilst the author may have had this in mind about him, in terms of everyone else who's reading the book, well they can just come up with their own picture in their own mind and that really doesn't matter too much. You can't do that with Christ. It matters very much, this question. This Jesus, the Son of Man, is a very distinct and particular person And how you answer this question, who do you think he is, this really matters. You'll see that Jesus begins by asking who the vast crowds are saying that he is. And the answers come back that, well, they're all assuming that you in some way are some kind of revisitation of one of the former prophets. At top of the list right now, because he's fresh in everyone's memory still, is John the Baptist. But others, well, they look back into the Old Testament Scriptures. Maybe he's one of those great prophets of old. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Well, he must be one of them. And that's how most of the people are thinking about him. Well, that at least demonstrates that most of the people can see that, well, God is at work in some way here, this isn't just a, a man doing things on his own. But suggestions such as these are severely lacking, aren't they? Well, first of all, each of these suggestions relates Jesus to some famous and respected figure in Israel's past. But that means that they're failing to see the uniqueness about the Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't just another prophet. He's far more unique and special than that. Now, he may be like John and like Elijah or one of the other prophets in certain ways, but he's far more than that. He's far greater than that. There is none like him. He's in a class all of his own. So every single one of these designations by the crowd, it's not that they're being unflattering necessarily, it's not that they're being mean-spirited towards Christ, but they're failing to see the uniqueness of Christ, that there is none like him. And to say this of Jesus leaves him only as a man, as all of these others were. He's just a man. And if that's all he is, then actually, to be honest, this question isn't worth your time worrying about. If that's all he is. If he is just a man. It is true that there are things about Jesus which do make him like Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist. You can understand why the people might think that way. But if you think of him simply as being a slightly improved version, here's the new improved version, well, that just falls so far short. Imagine going down to Sefton Park and uh, kicking the ball around are a couple of the players from Everton or Liverpool, choose your team accordingly, and uh, As can often happen in a Liverpool park, you're standing at the side watching them kicking the ball around, and and one of them kicks the ball to you, and you kick it back, and in no time at all, you're joining in with them. You think, well, it's great, except you don't realize who they are. You haven't got a clue who it is you're kicking the ball with. And you're knocking the ball around with them for about half an hour, and then you have to go your separate ways, and you say to them, "Eh, thanks, guys. you, you, you're not that bad, really. Do, do you play in any team? Do any of them play in a team? And you thought what you said was actually being quite complimentary. You thought, well, that's quite a reasonable thing to say. But they're left staring at one another in total disbelief. Do you not know who we are? And that's the point here, isn't it, with Jesus. Do you, do you not know who I am? That you would just think I'm an also-ran with the rest of them? Have they seen and heard so much and not know who I am? Can they really not see the difference? And it's not enough to come up with your own answer. It's not enough even to think very highly of Christ in the sense of him being the best of his kind. There are no others of his kind. That's the issue with Jesus. It will do you no good to follow after a Christ that you've invented in your imagination. It will do you no good to follow after a Christ who is merely a great moral teacher. You must follow after a Christ who claimed and demonstrated that he was the very Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Saviour of the world. That's the only kind of Christ that can do you any good at all. And this is the Christ that God has sent into the world. And Jesus puts it to his disciples, and he puts it to each one of us this morning, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up after the question has been put to them in verse 15. But who do you say that I am? And Jesus says to them. So Jesus isn't asking Peter specifically. He doesn't say to Peter Who do you say I am? He asks all of the disciples, Who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. And what we see here is that only God can give you saving knowledge of his Son. Only God can give you saving knowledge of his Son. The lesson in these verses is very simple, but it strikes at the very heart of our sin problem. The hordes of people have watched Christ do miracle after miracle. They've heard his teaching, and yet they remain in complete darkness as to his true identity. They've seen his miracles as he demonstrates himself clearly to be the one that he claimed to be, yet the, the crowds have not accepted his testimony and his works. And the Bible teaches us this same truth in many different ways, that in our sinfulness, we do not have the capacity to see or understand who Jesus is. Neither do we have the the capacity to, to see why I need him as a sinner to be my savior. The Apostle Paul will tell us in Romans that we suppress the truth for what we know to be a lie. He tells the Corinthian church that the problem with all men and women is that Satan has blinded their minds. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, but we're all dead in our sins. The huge crowds do not see Jesus as he is because they cannot see Jesus for who he is. And we learn in these verses that only the Lord himself can give us a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that knowledge, when it comes to you, is God's gift to you. Oh, Peter, says Jesus, blessed are you. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, how clever you are. He doesn't say, Peter, how smart and and perceptive you are. No. Blessed are you, Peter. Why? Because this is what God has done for you. This is what God has done in you. This is not an intellectual light bulb moment for Peter. This is not a a get-in-the-bath-eureka experience that Peter's just had. Peter did not somehow work this out for himself. This is the result of a gift and work of the Holy Spirit in in Peter's life. A spiritual work has taken effect in Peter, and perhaps in many of the other disciples as well. What exactly is it that God has revealed to Peter concerning Jesus in verse 16? You are the Christ You're not simply one of. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's realised you have to take Jesus out of the one of category. He isn't one of anything amongst others. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here is the one question which rises far above any other question that you'll ever face. Who do you say in your own heart that this Jesus is? And what the rest think is irrelevant. What do you say? How do you answer? Look again at the answer given by Simon Peter. It's not what I think is It's not, well, I'm of a different opinion to them. It's not, well, I think you could be, or I think you might be. Peter simply makes this profound, universal statement. He pronounces this confession and this truth. It's a very profound statement that Peter makes. It's very short, it's very simple, but it sums up everything that needs to be said. You are the Christ and by saying that he's saying Jesus you are the promised Messiah from of old you are not one of the prophets you are the one that all of those prophets have been speaking about you are the one who all of those prophets have been pointing to and looking forward to you are the long-awaited deliverer of God's people you are the Messiah You are God's anointed one and chosen one. And then he goes on, secondly, you are God's unique son, the son of the living God. And this is a sonship which is not and cannot be applicable to any other Person, this isn't the kind of sonship that we receive as Christians, even though we are called sons of God and God is considered our father, but we don't become sons of God the way Jesus is the Son of God. You are the very Son of God, you are the divine Son, you are the eternal Son, the Son of the living God. You are God. There is none like you. Peter, it's dawned upon Peter now with the aid of God's Spirit. Jesus isn't just the the next or the latest in a long line of prophets. The Son of the living God. It's quite an extraordinary claim that Peter is setting forth And this profession stands at the heart of Christianity. This this profession, this confession, stands at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian believer. No other estimation of Christ will do than this one. Uh, J.C. Ryle makes this observation. The glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that that he made it when few were with Christ and many were against Christ. He made it when the rulers of his own nation, the scribes and priests and Pharisees, were all opposed to his Master. But the Holy Spirit has placed this conviction deep within Peter's soul, and he's given, the, given him this clarity of thought regarding Christ. Every true Christian must acknowledge that Jesus is God. Every Christian must acknowledge that Jesus is God's only Savior for sinners and not just a mental uh, agreement with the truth. Embracing this truth, believing it with all your soul, committing your whole life to Him and trusting yourself to Him as the Savior, as your Savior, the one who is the Son of the living God. Do you believe in him like this? Have you received him? Are you trusting in him alone as Christ is offered in the gospel for your salvation? That's the issue that Jesus is getting to with his disciples here. Jesus is wanting to hear his disciples make this clear confession about his person who he is, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, then and only then will the things that Christ is going to do, only then will they make sense. He's the Messiah, the Christ. And Simon Peter, having made this pronouncement, uh, he and the other disciples with him from verse 18 hear this uh, great truth brought to them and and Jesus makes some amazing statements to them. So he, he acknowledges, first of all in verse 17, he acknowledges the thing that Simon has said and that where it has come from, and that this is God at work amongst his disciples, bringing them to this truth. And then from verse 18, Jesus makes these amazing statements, and, and here is the very foundation of the church in these things that Jesus says. And, and what Jesus is saying here, we actually see worked out in the New Testament church. As you read through the Acts of the Apostles, as you read the epistles that that, that are written by the Apostles, you see the truth of this actually being put in place and being worked out. Now there is a lot of wonky thinking over these few verses and it's a wonky thinking that has led to some very grave errors. Jesus says something that's caused great controversy as far as some are concerned for many years. You are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus talking about here? As Jesus addresses Peter, there's a very wide acceptance that He wasn't the only one out of the twelve who'd come to this conclusion. And that here, as often Peter does, he's kind of acting as a spokesman on behalf of the others. And whilst Jesus does reply to him in a personal way, the things that Jesus says, it does also have a wider application to all of the disciples as his apostles. And we do see that worked out in the early church. What is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church? Well, it's not Simon Peter individually and personally. Jesus is saying that he will build his church, number one, as people come to this same confession of faith about Christ, and number two, as the church is established upon the foundation that the apostles are going to build. There have been some who've said that the word uh, rock in this passage refers only and uniquely to Peter, and in doing so, they would say, That establishes Peter as the first pope of the church and all of those who have succeeded him. Well, it's interesting that in verse 23, Jesus then is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. I think to put Peter up on that kind of pedestal is not what Jesus is intending to convey. All through the New Testament, it's made clear that Jesus himself is the foundation of the church. He's the head of the church. It is he who will build it. He says that in verse 18. I will build my church, Jesus says. It's my church. I'll do the building of it. But in Ephesians 2, for example, in verses 19 and 20, Paul places alongside one another Christ, the chief cornerstone, and the work he will do through his apostles. So Paul writes this, You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then there's Revelation chapter 21, verse 14 where we read this the wall of the city had 12 foundations this is picture language to teach us a spiritual truth 12 uh, foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb now that's picture language but it's to teach us this truth that there is this foundation that God would establish through his apostles And the preaching of the gospel is a vital and necessary part of the church being built. This is what I'm going to build on, Jesus is saying. John Calvin makes this observation. Jesus is saying, though you are now a tiny number of men, and therefore your confession has little worth at the present time, yet the time will soon come when it will stand out splendidly and will spread far wider. There's a great work in store for these 12 men. All the things that Christ is going to accomplish through these men. And Peter and the rest of the the apostles, uh, their role in building the church is on record in the Acts of the Apostles. And the gates of hell cannot and never will be able to hold back the onslaught of the Christian gospel as sinners are rescued from hell. And as Christ continues to build His church, as sinners are saved by grace, hence His building of His church goes on 2,000 years later. That's why just the other week we were able to have a couple of young men baptized and receive a few more into the membership of the church because Christ continues to build His church. It's the whole body of believers of every age, from every tongue, from every tribe and language and nation. It's a church composed of all who are washed in the blood of Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by Christ's Spirit, joined to Christ by faith. Is that you this morning? Have you named this Lord Jesus like that? It's a church of which every member is baptised with the Holy Spirit and really and truly beginning to be made holy in your life. It's a church which is one body, and all who belong to it are of one heart and one mind. They hold the same truths. They believe the same doctrines that are necessary for salvation. It's a church which has only one head, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But he would use his apostles in the laying of its foundation. What does does Jesus mean when he says he's giving Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is not saying that the apostles personally get to decide who gets into heaven and who doesn't. That's what he emphatically is not saying. If you're going to get to heaven you need to have your sins forgiven. And the Bible makes it very clear that only God can forgive your sins. And the apostles will go on to teach very clearly that God it is who has chosen his own elect ones. So he's not suggesting that Peter and the apostles somehow now get to choose who's in and who's out. No, the keys of the kingdom lie in the preaching of the gospel. Because in doing that, it becomes clear who will accept Christ. It's in the preaching of the gospel that it becomes clear who will remain stubbornly opposed to him. Which of those two categories are you in this morning? Listen to Peter in Acts chapter 15 at verse 7. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's that's the keys to the kingdom. As these men preach the gospel, hearts are being opened. And the Holy Spirit is entering. and Lives are being converted and people are coming to Christ. The kingdom is expanding. And this apostolic testimony cannot be changed. It can't be altered in any way. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. it. Anyone who comes along and says that Christianity is founded on a different truth, on a different foundation than that which Jesus has, has vested in the apostles to lay for us, well, that person is bringing a falsehood to you. It's through the preaching of the gospel that sinners enter the narrow gate and start out along that path which leads to life everlasting. It's through the preaching of the gospel that others choose to say, no, I'm staying on this broad road, thank you very much, even though you tell me it leads to destruction. I'm staying right here. Is there anyone here who's done that? How is it for you this morning? You see, there's a a sense now in which as I bring these truths to you, I'm holding those same keys this morning in this sense that through my mouth, as in many other mouths all around the world today, this same gospel message is being proclaimed. These same truths now are being laid before you. But it must be the same gospel as these apostles received. That's the important point. Not a changed message. It's not my message. They're not my keys that I had cut. It's through this message of Christ. It's through this person of Christ. Christ alone is the door by whom you may enter. And whosoever will may come. And you'll find rest for your soul, but you can only come through him. But continue to reject him. And one day it will be too late. And the door of heaven will be forever closed to you. And that leads us to the the binding and loosing language here. Now in one sense it's talking about those who repent and profess Christ and whose testimony is received by the church and they're baptised and they're admitted to the church whilst all who reject it remain outside. That alone is the ground for being in or out of Christ's church. But also the apostles will be used by Christ to establish all of the sound doctrine that the church and that Christian believers will need, in order that we can live as we should, in order that we can make sound and godly judgments, in order that we can exercise proper discernment for ourselves, in line with God's Word. And even the rebuke and the admonition and the correction and the instruction that's all necessary in the church, just as Paul charges to Timothy in his letter, through the preaching of the Word of God. So when the Apostle Paul, for example, gives us all those various putting off and putting on passages, as he describes the change that comes about in the life of a believer, as the sinful life and all of our sinful ways are being cast off, and as godliness and righteousness now is pursued in that lifelong process of sanctification, as he teaches us how things are to be amongst ourselves in the church, in all of this teaching, there is binding and there is loosing. Take hold of this. Let go of that. There are commands and exhortations to take hold of. Stand firm in this have no more to do with that. This one, we accept. They have a credible, a, a credi- credible profession of faith. This one, we cannot accept. And so on. There's, there's the whole uh, level of binding and loosing based on the Scriptures, based upon the truth that the apostles will lay down for us. And we're not free to change or modify those things. They are now inscripturated for us. And they stand forever. Unchanged, unchanging, enduring. The apostles have done the work that Christ gave them to do. And it's all recorded for us in the scripture. And so it's a glorious thing that Jesus is, is just opening the door on here in these couple of short verses, that all would be fulfilled wonderfully in the life of the church. But all of these things will happen according to God's predetermined timeline. And that time is not quite yet. And that is why Jesus tells them that they must not yet speak openly about these things. The time is just around the corner, really, but it's not just yet. The time is drawing very near, but it's not just yet. So for now, you must not relay these things I'm saying to you to anyone else, says Jesus. And yet, how blessed you are this morning to have the completion of it in your own hands, in a copy of the Bible, to sit under the proclaiming of Christ, to be under the instruction of God's Word, whether that's at church or whether it's at home or whether it's just in your own personal reading and study of the Bible. And so this one great question still stands. It stands for you today as it did for the disciples 2,000 years ago. This is where it all begins. And you, 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 you cannot get any further until you've dealt with this one question. This Jesus of Nazareth, who do you say he is? Well, may the Lord help you in your own heart to answer that question.